Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. This is an RNZ podcast. Hello, I'm Simon Morris. This week saw another attempt by a movie award show to take the industry back to the good old days when these things mattered. This year has already had several self-inflicted injuries, including the implosion of the once-important Golden Globes. Not anymore. It was up to this week's British BAFTAs to rev up the excitement for the Oscars in a couple of weeks' time. Welcome to the 75th and final... E.E. <laughs> British Academy Film Awards. Oh, wait, so, sorry, is this, this is not the final one? Oh, we'll see about that. As a sign of the times, the host was Australian comedian Rebel Wilson. The Oscars plan to have not one but three female hosts, assuming they can't be worse than most of the recent male ones. The BAFTA results can best be described as all over the shop. And a BAFTA goes to... Joanna Scanlon, After Love. Fifteen separate films received major awards this year. We're slightly hindered in New Zealand because several of the big winners haven't arrived here yet. These include highly regarded films like After Love, Best Actress Joanna Scanlon, Coda, Best Supporting Actor and Script, and Best Foreign Film, Drive My Car. All I know about Drive My Car is everyone says it's very good and it's three hours long. But what isn't this year? The most wins went to the Majestic Dune, which picked up all the usual big commercial movie awards. Special effects, cinematography, sound, music and design. Not bad for a film of the first half of a book. Their cruelty to my people is all I've known. What's to become of our world? And from a New Zealand perspective, the two major awards, Best Film and Best Director, went where they were supposed to go. Jane Campion's unassailable Power of the Dog has carried all before it on both sides of the Atlantic. And I wouldn't be surprised if it did the double again at the Oscars. Well, thank you BAFTA members for loving our film. Our only regret is that the amazing, great Jane can't be standing here now. Working with Jane has been a huge privilege. Jane, we're all standing on your shoulders tonight. I was pleased Licorice Pizza picked up something. The best original script has been a worthy consolation prize for decades, from Citizen Kane to Pulp Fiction. But at least it went to the right man, director Paul Thomas Anderson. Well, um, Paul is going to be very excited to win this. Not least because he's, it's, it means I've been forced to come and give a really awkward and inarticulate speech on his behalf, which you will find very funny. So, um, what would you like to say, Anna? What would I like to say? 
So, did these BAFTAs reignite the public's interest in movies after some lukewarm years? I doubt it. What we're missing, apart from most of the actual award winners this year, were many movies that audiences had been to, or frankly, had even heard of. If they can't understand you, then they're not listening. You know who you are, don't you? Your buddy from Belfast, where everybody knows you. Apart from Best British Film Belfast, Dune and James Bond, the rest were mostly critical favourites, more likely to appear in Sight and Sound than in the Daily Mail. If you want people to get excited about the BAFTAs again, it might take more than jokes about Rebel Wilson's diet. I did not lose weight just for a guy, as if. I did it to get more acting roles. (laughs) Boy, I am now so excited I can play the non-funny love interest in an Adam Sandler movie. This week features three more minor films. There's Blind Ambition, the story of an unlikely wine-tasting team. There's a Swedish film about fans of Nordic auteur Ingmar Bergman called Bergman Island. But first, an English comedy about women misbehaving on the continent. It's called Off the Rails. Imagine what we're all going to be like when we see the lights at Palmer. We need a pastry and a lie down. Off the Rails has been carved out of the remains of so many other films that it's hard to know where to start. We meet our three heroines, single Kate, married Liz and divorced American Cassie, as they receive bad news about the fourth of the one-time Fab Four, Anna. Kate Fisher? Hey, Kate, are you okay? Hey. Oh, no. Today we are paying tribute to Anna Farmer, a beloved daughter, a loving mother. This is unbearable. Anna, at one time the glue holding the quartet together, has sadly died and the surviving three meet up again at the funeral. They've drifted apart over the years, but Anna's mum comes over with a letter for them all. A letter with certain instructions. She wanted you to have this. We never got to see those lights in Palmer Cathedral, but you still can. 2nd of Feb, 9am. That's in five days. Now, I know what you thought when you saw the trailer for Off the Rails one wet Sunday at your local. There's Judy Dench, you thought, so we should be fine. Sadly, no, that's pretty much the extent of Judy's contribution to the film. She delivers a letter. Everyone? God's disco ball only appears in Palmer Cathedral for 15 minutes once a year. And that's in five days' time, exactly. The letter from the late Anna reminds the other three that they had plans to go to Palmer in Italy once to see something called God's disco ball. As is often the way with these films featuring people of a certain age, it's also necessary to add someone younger. In this case, Anna's daughter Maddie. The reformed foursome take off in a rush of excitement and blondie songs to have a sex in the city sort of adventure. Why she left us four tickets? She wants us to go back. The good thing about being on a train is it gives us time to find out what everyone's hopes and dreams are so we can tick them off at the end. Liz, Sally Phillips, is in a safe but boring marriage. She's the uptight one and therefore does all the menopause jokes. 
Of the 32 symptoms of menopause, I have 34. <laughs> the English ladies and the beautiful American. Kate, Jenny Seagrove, is the strapped-for-cash one who's also given up on men. But millennial Maddie sees through this and sets her up on a dating app to rope in a nice chap like this. Colin Bateman. Nine Inches. I'm reading a book called Nine Inches by Colin Bateman. I'm Dan. Meanwhile, Cassie, the last performance by the late Kelly Preston, is an American actress who's been a regular on a British soap for years playing a nurse. Right now, she's trying to get back custody of her son, despite being otherwise completely self-obsessed. She's complex, in other words. I am an American citizen. We've lost Maddie. I won't lose her. Jeez. Off the rails is the work of a bunch of people I've never heard of who clearly hope this film will rectify that. It certainly ropes in every cliché you can think of, from women let loose in Europe, doesn't anyone here speak English, to the train breaking down just as a young passenger goes into labour. Is there nobody here who's played a nurse in a soap opera? Anna loved Blondie. <laughs> the train is broken. Oh, my God, it can't be! We'll oh, never make it in no, time. Don't worry, we'll oh, find a way. She's having a baby to go in. I can do this, Cassie. And as we hasten to God's disco ball, we have to do this for Anna. There are ample opportunities for self-improvements, huggings and learnings. Will Liz's marriage hit a few potholes? Will Kate and Dan make a go of it? Maybe our paths will cross again. Wow, you look amazing. Will Maddie suddenly realise something or other? I can't remember what her thing was, apart from wanting to follow in the footsteps of Mum. And Cassie discovers an interest in ageing film stars of the 70s. Good heavens, it's Franco Nero. Somebody's happy. I've been trying to make American pancakes. Well, that's another thing about Off the Rails. Sensing the film may not make it under its own steam, everyone was roped in to call in any celebrities they could find. Hence Franco and Judy Dench, plus an unrecognisable Martin Shaw playing a mud-spattered Italian pilot. Anyone order a midlife crisis? It's nearly nine. Quick, cannot miss it this time. Even the late Anna turns up briefly in a flashback at the end and turns out to be one of the cause pop group. Perhaps Debbie Harry of Blondie was too expensive or had read the script. She thought the world of you. There's so much out there. Then let's go and get it. I'd only glanced at the description of a small documentary called Blind Ambition and totally got the wrong impression. With that name and an indication it had something to do with the Olympics, I had the idea it was about a sight-impaired sports team. Well, not quite. It's a film about wine. I remember well my very first sip of wine. I didn't like it. (laughs) 
Blind Ambition follows the first ever Zimbabwe team to enter the prestigious and very European wine tasting competition held in France. It takes time to realise just how unlikely this was. You've got these cows, they get uprooted from their own country, forced over the border into a foreign country. No knowledge of wine, what do they end up doing? In fact, it was unlikely these four men would even be alive, let alone competing with wine tasters from Italy, France, Germany and the rest at their own game. They'd all been refugees from Robert Mugabe's Zimbabwe with no background in wine at all. It's crazy to think we're going to be competing in a few weeks at the World Tasting Championships. A few years ago, none of us had ever tasted wine before. Joseph, Marvin, Tinashe, Van Pardon, Team Zimbabwe. Joseph, the leader, originally disliked the taste. Tinashe knew there was red and white wine, that was it. Pardon thought all this talk about variety of vineyards and vintages was being made up to fool him. And Marvin, the devout Christian, didn't touch alcohol at all until he remembered Jesus' first miracle involved wine. It's like the Olympics of wine tasting. The wine could come from anywhere in the world. It's extremely difficult. It's like Egypt putting together a team of skiers to go and compete in the Winter Olympics. Through luck and some obvious natural gifts, all four found employment at top South African restaurants and they set out to learn all about wine. They were so successful that they all made it on the long list for the South African wine tasting team. And realising that four of the finalists were from Zimbabwe, Joseph suggested forming a national team. Some of the most incredibly wonderful minds don't fit where we think they belong. They needed to raise the money themselves, but they inspired influential wine writers as well as a lot of expat Zimbabweans. And as the elements of Team Zim miraculously started to fall into place, they secured the services of a star coach, a voluble Frenchman with an impressive reputation called Denis. And then it just snowballed. Now we have a coach. He was once the best wine tester in the world. Bonjour! <laughs> Denis turned out to be something of a mixed blessing, but he undoubtedly knew the wine business, and more important, he had plenty of local knowledge when it came to the wine-tasting competition itself. Like a good wine, the film Blind Ambition proves to have several layers. A uh, crazy character? I do, but I want... Do you think you can irritate people? Oh, immediately. The odds are stacked against them. We're going to make history. It's a fascinating look at what goes on at a blind wine tasting where the competing teams have to identify a wine and everything about it entirely on the strength of its taste. It's also about the sort of people who compete and succeed at this level. There are teams from the United States, Sweden, China and even New Zealand up against the Tyro Zimbabweans. In Zimbabwe, there was only the rich and the poor. Seven million people faced starvation. I couldn't let my family starve. Luckily, we made it into South Africa, but we almost died. But behind the competition, there are the nightmarish experiences of the quartet as they strove to build their new lives. They're clearly loath to talk too much about the land they left behind. They still have family there. You try to explain it to someone else, they wouldn't understand you. Our journey is tattooed in our hearts. It's difficult to take it off.
One question never asked, possibly because it's impossible to answer, is how these four men discovered their gifts. They do talk a little about how hard it was identifying flavours when the usual wine descriptors are so Eurocentric. Cherries, blackberries, gooseberries, none of these are familiar to Africans. We're proud to welcome you because you're the best palates in the world. Looking in my life and where I've come from and where I've been. Mama, I love you all. I think I actually do believe in destiny. Blind ambition climaxes with the results, but as always in documentaries like this, it's what happens afterwards that finishes the story. Like any good wine, Team Zimbabwe gets better with age. Worth a sip, is what I'm saying. This is where my heart is, and this is where my heart will always be. There's a famous line in the old romantic comedy As Good As It Gets where Jack Nicholson tells Helen Hunt that she made him want to be a better man. It's sold as a great compliment. Well, Bergman Island sort of made me want to be a better film critic, but I'm not sure if it's a compliment. It just reminded me how few Ingmar Bergman films I'd actually seen. So you know this island? It's kind of special, right? Yeah, it's the island of the director you and Mummy like a lot. Yep, that's it. I mean, seen all the way through, not just a few clips of Max von Sydow and Liv Ullman looking bleakly at each other or nodding sagely when anyone refers to playing chess with death or whatever. On the strength of the few films I've seen, Bergman's reputation as the gloomy Swede remains intact. A lot of people come here to work. Then come see Students, writers... Designers. Wow. But the fans can't get enough of Ingmar, like a married couple of filmmakers, Tony and Chris, played by Tim Roth and Vicky Creeps. They arrive at Bergman's home, the place that inspired so many of the late director's best works, hoping for inspiration in their own films. All this calm and perfection, I find it oppressive. Soothing. You know how hard writing is for me? It's, it's torture, it's self-inflicted agony, it's blood from a stone. Well, then, do something else. The idea of a couple, each attempting to write a Bergman-esque film under the daunting influence of the man himself, well, that's a potentially dark, destructive story worthy of Bergman, you'd think. Yeah, like what? Full-time housewife? Well, it's an honourable profession. As Tony and Chris take walks around Bergman's Island, they meet people who knew him or knew people who had known him. He was a man for whom the work was everything. Certainly more important than his many children, mostly born to different mothers. Do you think you can't create a great body of work and raise a family at the same time? At the age of 42, Bergman had directed 25 films. How do you think he would have done that if he was also changing diapers? This aspect of Bergman is most disturbing to Chris. Is it possible to create great art while being a callous, self-centred person, she wonders? How do you feel about that? I should feel bad, right? No, it's just because you like him so much, I'm wondering. Yeah, you do too. Bergman was as cruel in his art as in his life. How's your thing going? Pretty good, actually. What's it about? How invisible things circulate within a couple. 
Chris struggles to get her thoughts on paper. Tony, on the other hand, seems to find the act of creation relatively easy. And like a good Bergman couple, they argue over this. They take off on lone hikes without telling the other. They meet intriguing strangers and contemplate infidelity. The attraction was still overwhelming. But there was no place in their lives for this love story anymore. Maybe I should have studied a few more Bergman films, but on the strength of Bergman Island, directed by French-born Mia Hansen-Love, I'm not sure I could have faced it. When the breezy Swedish concierge shows Tony and Chris around the cottage, she points at the family bed that inspired scenes of a marriage. That film in turn inspired millions of divorces, she chuckles. All oh, those Swedes. You do realise we're going to sleep in the bed, but I should see from a marriage film that made millions of people divorce. Ah, oh, shit. Fuck, sorry. We have to maybe sleep in the other bedroom. Midway through their stay, Tony and Chris are encouraged to tell the stories they're writing. Tony demurs. He doesn't want to jinx it, he says. Chris, on the other hand, launches into a full account, the story of an affair resumed after many years. They loved each other passionately and awkwardly like teenagers do. I never mentioned it to my girlfriend. But she's jealous of you. In the middle of their story, there's a brief moment where the action pauses for an excerpt of Summer Wine, an old number by Lee Hazelwood and Nancy Sinatra. myself wishing that instead of Bergman Island they could have gone to Lee and Nancy Island where at least I might have picked up a few more of the references. If you react to Bergman films the way I react to florid 60s ballads, Bergman Island may very well be for you. I really thought you would encourage me. Are you angry? Why are not me? I don't know. It's just life. You'll like the fact that it refuses to resolve itself, instead ending in a sort of meta-cinematic coup that presumably echoes the work of the master. Didn't Bergman say once, my basic view of things is not to have any basic views of things? And on that suitably enigmatic note, it's time to go. I'm Simon Morris, and I hope you'll join me at the movies same time next week. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.